When are we gonna talk about us? Hello, welcome to Finding Our Voices, the podcast. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, which is at findingourvoices.net and which is survivors, including me, breaking the silence of domestic abuse by standing proud and speaking loud. He freaked out and he smacked me in the face. I mean, I cried, he cried, and he was like, I've never done that before. And of course, I believed him. There are some days that were really good days and you have fun with that person and then they apologize and nothing happens for two weeks and they said that they were sorry and you think that everything's going to be okay and then it happens again. My guest today is Jackie McLean. Strack, a.k.a. the singer-songwriter of Blue Elan Records, who with her husband Sean forms the indie pop duo Roan Yellowthorn, and whose songs Let's Talk About It and I'm Enough form the soundtrack to this podcast. She is also my daughter. I left her father in January 2016 following his arrest on domestic violence. We were married 29 years. He pled guilty to five charges of domestic abuse and in a plea deal was convicted of three. It is a miracle to me that not only did she step up to join Finding Our Voices by being a face and voice of parental domestic abuse on our printed outreach that includes huge downtown business window banners and bookmarks, but that we are sitting together and talking about what we did not and could not talk about for so long for this podcast. Welcome, Jackie. And now, let's talk about it. So this is our, is that our third attempt? Uh, at least, yeah. Been a little, this thing's been a little tricky. It has been difficult. For a while, I, I was sort of walking on eggshells around the subject with you, so I think part of it is that I'm just very self-conscious about what I ask you about. Oh, you don't have to worry about that anymore, though. Okay. I'm not, I'm not triggered by it anymore. I'm, 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 I've healed past that point. Wow. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. That's a big change. But for a while, I definitely was not really ready to, I wasn't really in a place where I could really talk about it that easily. There was a time when I was trying to maintain a relationship with dad and, you know, he has this really like paranoid mentality. So it was, I felt like I was really in, in the middle and I felt like, if I expressed any attention for one of you, then it would be putting me even more in the middle of something. You've been feeling in the middle for a long time. Yes. Do you think you've been in the middle for like all your life, would you say? Yeah, I feel like there haven't been, until recently, I don't feel like there have been any kind of boundaries. I feel like I've had to create those boundaries in a lot of ways. That's the other thing that happened, right? So that you became like the parent and I was the child because you comforted me a lot when, when you were growing up. I feel like I was always the parent. Yeah. When I was growing up, I was always worried about you trying to protect you and look out for you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, had like intense anxiety that you were always going to disappear. Right. And the other thing that happened in our family is I remember like 
sending you to your father sometimes when he was in like in a bad mood because I knew that if you were cute, your cute little girl self, that would cheer him up. Do you right. remember that whole dynamic? Well, I remember like I felt like I was always responsible for everything. Right. It's just interesting to me too because when I split from your father in that very dramatic way, yeah, it seemed to me that it was really obvious that he was the abuser and I was the victim. But to you, it seems like that dynamic was not as apparent to you or grow and even growing up like that we were fighting. You didn't really even you see it as he he was the aggressor. No, I don't think that's true. I think it's just different experiences that we had. You know, like you and I had different experiences because as a child in that situation, I saw both of my parents as extensions of each other. And because of the culture of our family, you didn't really go against things that he said. So it was a unified, solid front in some, to some degree. Yeah, it felt that way a lot of the time, but I was like afraid of him. Right. You know, I wasn't afraid of you, but when I was kind of coming to terms with all of the abuse that did happen because of his behavior, I, I went through a period where I was feeling pretty resentful about, about like, you know, what I saw as, um, not being protected by you from those situations. Yeah. And is there anything I did that was, can we say, both helpful to resolve this and that didn't help to resolve it? Well, we couldn't really talk about, about dad, like before you guys got divorced. Right. So that was something that I wasn't able to talk with you about before. Right. And then once you did get a divorce, it became something that, I could talk to you about and then everything kind of like blew open I think in terms of my experiences because I finally was able to kind of talk to you about them. I do remember though that a couple of times in the beginning I, I, I said I wasn't going to own that. Remember like when you told me that you felt that I had neglected you or you felt that I as you said that the resentments that you voiced to me for the first time. It's been a process I think but even even when you were saying that, I think that was in the context of like a therapy session. You wanted to try to like talk about stuff and make things better. And that, I think that was really important. Obviously you're a good person and you care about me and that's not negated, you know, but that, that can be the case. And it can also still be the case that because of, because of the situation that was happening, I was neglected in a lot of cases. What is your earliest memory of something feeling wrong in our family? Okay, I think that's a really interesting question because when you're born into a situation, it feels normal. Mm -hmm. even, if, even if it's scary, you don't realize how wrong or, or not normal it is until you're out of, this, out of the situation. That's so interesting to think about because I... I got into it when I was 27, but I, mean, I can't even imagine being born into it. Because obviously I was so stressed out and nervous when, when I was pregnant with you. So it was transmitted even when you were in utero, Jackie. And I can't even get my head around that, what that must be like. 
as uncomfortable and like as anxiety provoking and whatever all the things that you can say about it as much as it was all of that it wasn't until it was a process for me to realize that it wasn't normal it wasn't until i really like got out of the house that i even started to see that it wasn't normal are you talking about high school no i'm talking about like college I remember always being like afraid, very like intense enough so that I felt like my life was in danger. I think my earliest memory of feeling really afraid was when I was two or three, maybe I was like really little and there was like something that was lost. There was like a key that was lost. Yeah. And I think that dad was screaming at me, like telling, like asking me where it was, like telling me that I lost it or something. It was just in a drawer. Like I didn't, I didn't even hide it. So I like I hadn't, I didn't know where it was, and I remember just feeling so much darkness and fear and panic, you know. Yeah. But it you, was always that. That feeling was always there. You know what's so weird about that, Jackie? I I sort of figured out at some point that he was so much like my mother. Mm-hmm. And it's weird, like you hear about like boys, like they marry someone like their mother, you know. Yeah. But it I but my mother used to do that to me. She used to terrorize us when we were little. She'd get us up at like two in the morning to look for something, like a pair of scissors or something. Isn't that weird? That is weird. And it's weird because from the outside we had such different circumstances, but it's weird that, that it could have been repeated. It's true, it was very different circumstances, but it was the exact same dynamic. We were just continuing the cycle. How did the anger and control from your father affect you physically and emotionally? Well, just when you say that question, it makes my heart go really fast. So I've had a lot of, there's been a lot of physical effects, I think. When I was little, you said I used to like projectile vomit. I remember six months old, you, yeah, you projectile vomit anytime we took a trip because your father was especially nervous and stressed out for any trips. Yeah, and so I, I had like, I think I had OCD and anxiety from a really early age. Because remember, I used to always make that, those noises. I used to make those noises. Oh, yeah, you used to make noises, yeah. And then when I was like 12 or something, I, I just really fell into like a terrible, period of OCD. Yeah. Like debilitating. And, and I, I think partially I hid it from you both. It was like very secretive in a way, mm-hmm. but it also wasn't secretive because a lot of other adults were like picking up on, on things being not, not normal. And then when it became evident that there was an issue, like dad didn't want me to get help. He wouldn't let you get therapy. Right. Or medication, which I I was really in a bad way. Yeah, and I remember I wanted you to go on medication. That was hard for me because I, I felt you really needed it, but I know that he just said no. He didn't want that, so I didn't. I couldn't go up against that. It just seemed impossible. Like, I think when people hear OCD, they think of like hand washing. Right. But it was like I had so many rituals and compulsions that I was I was like actually debilitated every time I 
took a step, I'd have to like swallow 10 times. Every time I took a breath, I'd have to hold it for like two minutes. I would go as many days as I could without drinking water. I, I remember trying to hold my breath for like four minutes instead of like it would increase like first two minutes then three minutes then four minutes. I was like oh trying to hold God, my breath Jackie. for longer and longer. And I like, I wouldn't, I didn't change my clothes for like months. Wow. And like I would, I would sleep on top of the covers, like with all the windows open. Why? I was just like torturing myself. It was just like, I don't know. I was just doing more and more extreme things and also just being more and more debilitated. I couldn't function. Did you ever, did you ever think of asking someone for help, Jackie? I think part of it is like that literally nobody noticed. That was part of the problem, I think. That was part of the neglect that I wouldn't have noticed that. The focus was so much on, was so much somewhere else, you know? And then I think the other thing is that there was such like a culture in our house of secrecy. Right. Of not talking about what was wrong or not even acknowledging that something was wrong. Yeah. And then also I, I, I had kind of like a, a label on me from like a really early age of being crazy and sensitive. When there were things that were noticed, it was just like, oh, Jackie's just crazy. It is evidence of the fact that you were very distracted. What do you think your focus was on? You know, making sure that his mood stays stable and that nothing sets him off. Right. Just not wanting to set him off. That was the main thing. And also yeah. feeding his ego constantly so that, because that's what made him happy. Yeah. And I know that that's like a full-time job. Yeah, it really was. Like there's no, there's literally no space for anything else. No. And I, like, even with me, like, I even find myself having to, like, actively not do that with, with Sean. In the beginning of my relationship with him, I, and with other, with other boyfriends, too, I think, like, it's, it was my tendency, or whatever, my conditioning, I don't know, to just, like, completely always be, like, heart, hovering, and seeing if they need anything, and, like, making sure they're not mad at me and like seeing if they're feeling okay and like what do they need and like out of fear that they're that they're like actually secretly upset or that they're going to be upset or that you know what I mean and did you did Sean ever say anything to you about that early on or no but but it kind of I was able to not I was able to to see that what I was doing was not necessary right in that situation but with like dad for instance it was necessary so you, were you, did you feel yourself doing that too growing up with dad? Yeah. Everyone's attention was just focused on him all the time, on his mood and on, on making sure that it didn't get bad. You know, like everyone's attention was just only focused on that. It was like superstitious almost. What kind of things do you remember doing toward that? It's hard to even describe it because it was so all-encompassing. But if there's like a TV show on, making sure to laugh when he's laughing. Wow. You, you remember that, right? I don't remember laugh, laugh when he's laughing. I don't remember that. You don't remember that? No. Did you ever like... Well, I remember you always laughing when he was laughing. <laughs> See, I wasn't even doing it on purpose. It just came naturally. But you know, like not... 
it's just like the, there's like a, a constant undercurrent of vigilance always well also the conversation like it was always talking about what we knew he wanted to talk about and would make yeah. him happy and would make him engaged the things that we were doing were out of fear like it, it, we weren't like saying the things that we were saying because we felt like saying them it was like we were saying the things that we were saying to prevent him from getting angry right and we all knew it was it was we all knew what he wanted us to say it's interesting isn't it Jackie? when with control they don't have to tell you like after a while you just you do it on your own because you know but partially also you don't always know oh yeah that's true that's the problem you know that you have to try but you don't always know exactly what to do and that's what makes it very anxiety producing and then once he was like off the handle then that was like extremely scary because then there was no way to control what was happening right then then it was abject terror and chaos well it's so interesting that you say that jackie because i look upon my relationship with your father and in my memory that absolutely happened when he would turn into there was a jekyll and hyde thing and he would be completely you could not reach him yeah but that that in my mind it really happened until you know 1994 when i called 911 for the first time and then thereafter it never really got as bad as that but it's interesting that in your mind it was as bad as that even after that well i mean i don't know what you're comparing it to there were many times where something happened that like the time when he threw the toothpick yeah when he flicked a toothpick at a restaurant you picked it up and yeah. he, he interpreted that as as a criticism of, of his behavior mm -hmm. and you had a fight for four days. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, is that not intense? We may have had a fight for four days, but pre 1994, he, it was four days of him basically pulling my hair, kicking me, punching me, calling me the vilest words that you could ever imagine. I felt like after that he changed and it wasn't so bad. And I, and I even told myself, I'm really glad I weathered that because now I have a person who's, you know, reasonable. Oh my isn't that, God. Isn't that weird? I didn't know that. That's horrible. See, the way I behaved, the extra, uh, the hypervigilance was because I always knew it could be like that because it was for like seven years. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was working overtime and everything in me was trying to keep the peace because I knew it could be like it was before I made that 911 call, when he would be an absolute, total, truly a monster, you know? I saw like, rage. I saw him like break things. What did he break? Well, like he ripped the cookbook and stuff. Oh, he ripped my cookbook. That's why I have a, a gaffer tape on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Not exactly normal. To me, like the biggest thing was just the constant high level of fear, like a nameless fear that something terrible could happen to like threaten everybody. Right. And it felt like a life or death fear. You were trying to placate him. Yeah. 
that had like two effects because on one hand, like it was in an effort to like protect everybody. Right. But on the other hand, it kind of enabled, it enabled and kind of like normalized the behavior that was so abnormal. When I started growing and becoming more of a woman, I felt very afraid to be in front of dad because I was very aware of what I was wearing all the time. I was very, I was always worried that I was showing my body too much, even if I was wearing a t-shirt. Because he would make comments, he would say, go change. I felt like I had to actively hide my body because um, sometimes he would tell me I look fat in things. Sometimes he would say, you, you know, that I didn't look good in something. Or sometimes he would say that um, something was inappropriate. It was just, there was a, it was a constant commentary on how I looked. And um, I had an eating disorder. I don't think that that's accidental. I don't think that that's unrelated. I was very uncomfortable with my body. It was always being scrutinized. He, he would make comments all the time, kind of like as a way to upset me on purpose because mm -hmm. he knew that- like bait you. He knew that I, would it would upset me. You know, like one time I was watching TV and Beyonce was on TV. And I, and he said, he was like that. Um, women, women don't contribute anything to the world. They're what they've contributed amounts to a pamphlet. And I started like howling and crying. I was just so upset because he wouldn't stop saying that kind of, he said that thing and I pushed back a little bit. He kept pushing back harder and harder. Something as small as that could, could like start an attack. We were all sitting down and there was like no extra seat. And dad came over and nobody stood up immediately to give him a seat. And I just said, and I think I said like, well, you can sit over there. Oh my God. And he got so mad at me that it went on for like days. Mm -hmm. And then we were on the, on a plane and he like pulled me out of my seat and we were standing in the middle of the aisle. He was like screaming at me. He wasn't going to like, let me go to college. I don't know. Just this escalating and escalating and escalating. It's just, I couldn't, there's nothing I could do to make it stop. I, I was just standing there waiting for it to end. That was what it was like constantly. And just being attacked and screaming and like insults and um, being forced to say things and being forced to do things. And God forbid you ever push back a little bit. God forbid you have an opinion. Yeah, because then it's just literally, he's gonna keep going until you just collapse. And there was a, strong culture of fear in our family. So I was very afraid of him. And I think everyone else was too, which is why nobody ever really backed me up on anything that I did. And um, so anyway, that was what it was like growing up. He was either not there or he was like tyrannical. I wanted to get out of the house and I went away for college and at that point, um, you know, there was a period of a few years where he disowned me. And that consisted of daily phone calls where he would keep me on the phone for like hours at a time and yell at me and try to force me to, to do what he wanted, which was something specific that I refused to do. And every time I came home, he would 
physically corner me and yell at me for out for for sometimes like an hour and just demand that I agree with what he was saying, demand that I agree to do what he wanted me to do. And I didn't agree to do it. And that's why uh, it never stopped. And then. And he was telling you that you were going to ruin the family by not giving into into that. Yeah. And he was telling all of and, us that you and were going to ruin the family. And everyone else in the family agreed with him that I was ruining the family by not giving into him. So. I got that message from everywhere. And then uh, I got married. And that that was kind of the first time where I was out, out of the sphere a little bit more. But even then, every time we came back to visit, it was extremely stressful. And I felt like I had to give all my attention to and all my time. And I didn't have anything. I wasn't allowed to, to do anything for myself or by myself or... I even felt like I had, I was splitting my attention between my partner and my family is difficult. In a lot of ways, him being a famous musician has made me feel like I can't do music. Like there's no room for me to do it too. And I think growing up, there was that feeling a lot of the time. But you, you, you did music with him growing up. On his terms, like a little bit. Oh, like it would be his songs that he wanted to sing. and I'd sing like a little bit on or something like that. But it was never me doing anything by myself. And if, and if I did do something by myself, there was kind of like a mixed message about whether or not that was okay. You know, he never like helped me with anything. One time I emailed someone that he worked with to oh, ask. I remember that. Ask if he had advice for me because I oh wanted God, to. got so mad. I wanted to learn how to be in theater. Yeah. And I emailed his, like, agent or something. Yeah. And he got so mad at me. Wow. Like, so mad. You know, so I just, I was always getting these messages that, like, do not try to step into this territory because this is my territory. I know because it's all about, like, contacts. And here you had a father who had contacts. And so it must have been so frustrating to not be able to have access to any of those at all. Yeah. And he's, like, withholding all of the, all of the, any help, you know, and then... When I finally did start to do it on my own, it was so difficult. And I was like always feeling frustrated that people would think that I was getting help when really I was working against so much inner baggage about being able to do it at all. Mm -hmm. So many things would happen when I was younger. And I would think like, am I crazy for really thinking this? Like, can it really be possible? You know, like, am I crazy for thinking that he doesn't want me to succeed? Am I crazy for thinking that he wants, he doesn't want me to, to be successful or he doesn't want me to grow or he doesn't want me to be happy or whatever. And then once in a while I'd get these more like explicit confirmations that I was, that what I was feeling wasn't just crazy. You know, it was like real, but it's just so abnormal that you don't expect it to be real. Right. But I think that is real. He felt threatened by the idea of any, of either of us going into that field. Yes. It feels good to be doing it, but I still, I still feel like confused sometimes about why he hasn't wanted to ever help at all. You're even to acknowledge what I'm doing. When you used to meet him once a year for, your, for, the, for lunch, did he ever ask you about your music? 
No, but if you did ask something, it was in an interrogative kind of way where I felt like he was upset about it. It must have been scary to think that someone in the industry is, 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 is not wanting you to succeed. And it's also your dad. It would be easy to just turn away from it and not do it at all because it's because it brings up a lot of complicated feelings. But on your next album, you're actually talking about those feelings. It took a long time for me to even feel like I could think about it without being disloyal. When you guys got divorced, that was a huge time of trauma for me because suddenly he didn't have you to focus on and he decided to make me his focus. And he somehow thought that I was like a proxy to you and that he could get me to just to somehow change your mind about getting a divorce. So he would just call me and again, keep me on the phone for like hours and not let me hang up and just be screaming at me the whole time. It really wore me down. I started developing a whole bunch of autoimmune disorders and um, my body started like falling apart completely. I think the most traumatic time period for me was ever since your divorce, really. That's been the most traumatic. Wow. The last five years, because anytime, whenever, when the, when our family was still a unit, you were kind of like a buffer. And that's just what is exactly the, you've just hit the nail on the head, Jackie, which is why a lot of women stay right. in these families. And I was aware of that. Like I saw what he did, how he destroyed people all around me when they were disloyal or whatever he thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I knew that that was going to be turned full force on us if that, if that, if that ever happened. And that's why I was trying so hard to, you know, keep things nice. Right. And so look what, look at this, how this is the proof of this. So I did end up leaving mm -hmm. and that was the worst part for you. Was that you? was. So that was the worst part. Right. Because even though, even though when I was growing up, I didn't feel explicitly protected. I didn't feel like anyone was stopping him from the abuse that he was leveraging on me verbally and emotionally. I still, there was, there was a buffer there in that, you know, after I had a huge fight with him, maybe you would go hang out with him and he would like calm down. And, and I did the same thing. If you and dad were having a huge fight, I would be partially on alert to see if there was a moment where I could kind of like, enter in and like smooth anything out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So everyone was kind of, I think, on high alert to try to, to try to um, tame the beast. mitigate, you know? Tame the beast, would you say? Not tame, but like absorb some of the impact. Mm, for the others. Yeah. So when you guys got divorced and all of a sudden you were his enemy, and he couldn't talk to you because you had a restraining order. I was the proxy and there was no, nothing to protect me. And I was just the full force of his, of his power was just on me. You know, he was calling me all the time. He was text messaging me. He was threatening me. Um, and you know, he wasn't, he wasn't giving me any money. So he didn't have a lot of leverage 
in practical terms, you know, I, there was nothing that I was depending on him for, but emotionally, I he knew that I wanted his love. And so he would say like, if you don't do this, I'll never talk to you again. You know, or if you don't do this, I'm not gonna like you anymore. Or like, if you don't do this, it was just like, he was leveraging the love that I wanted mm-hmm. from him. He would call me, I would see the, my phone ring and I would, sometimes I would like throw up. I would be shaking and I would have to pick up the phone. Cause if I didn't pick it up, I knew that he'd be mad, madder at me the next time he called. Cause one time you would advise me when he was doing that to me to after I left him to, to block his calls, but you never thought about blocking his calls. My emotions were being manipulated and I genuinely felt like he was suffering. And even though he was being cruel to me, I thought to myself, well, he must be really suffering if he's being this cruel to me. So mm. I need, I, it, I really, he really does need my help somehow. And then, but then on the other hand, I felt that if I didn't have an indication of how he was feeling, then I would be more in danger. I had these fears that he would like show up at my house and like shoot me. Oh my God, really? Yeah, I don't know. I was just, I was terrified. I was like scared for my life. I didn't want him to know where I lived. We moved. I didn't tell him my new address. Like I just, wow. I was very much afraid and um, everything felt scary and chaotic and dangerous. And because he was being so unsta- acting so unstable or? because he was so full of rage and I was the one person that he was kind of like honed in on. Yeah. It felt, I mean, I'm sure you know what that's like. Right. To be the one target right. of all of his rage. I was in a, and I was in a constant state of terror for probably like four years, five years, like a high level of terror, more than just the high anxiety that I've had for my whole life. It was like, high octane that's the reason why it took me a very long time to because to cut ties and and so this is interesting because because I was afraid that if I that if I didn't have access to him that I'd be he'd actually hate me even more because it's like when I'm in contact with him I feel that he hates me but he's still asking for my help so there's something there that's a connection he needs me for something Mm mm-hmm if I alienate him completely and he has no use for me anymore, then he's, I'm going to be in more danger. So, so, so interesting because it's the same dynamic that when I was married to him and raising my family in that home, I felt that I was keeping everybody safer by staying there. And then when I left, then it was all on you. And you felt you had the same feeling that you had to stay in it because you were prop, you were it was more dangerous for you to get out of it. Yeah, because that was the unknown. I didn't at least when I was in it, I could monitor and know what was happening. Right. And if I wasn't connected to him in some way, then I could be surprised, and that that's scary. Right. So what would the lesson be? Because would that be what is the lesson from that? Like, but you, but you're glad that you got out. Well, it was a really long process. So there was that time period where he was very much fixated on me and trying to bully me into doing whatever he asked me to do. And um, that that evolved 
into a situation where then he withdrew because because by then he knew that I was not going to go back. The to divorce him. became final. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, and that intensity tapered off, and he withdrew. And then, and then it was a situation where I was trying to get his attention. And he he had no use for you at that. And point. he didn't want to have a re- relationship with me anymore. He said it explicitly. He didn't want to have a relationship with me. He didn't see me as his daughter. He had a better life, and he was happier without me involved. I felt in general um, worthless. Honestly, like my life was worthless. Mm. And like I, there was no purpose for me because- that, that, That's weird because I, I, the last year when I was trying, you know, he was having this affair and um, he was barraging me with these messages and I was, ignoring them right because then I sort of had the upper hand to some degree right Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. and then when he stopped Mm -hmm. that's what you're describing is exactly how I felt like when he he stopped cold and he stopped trying to get in touch with me Mm -hmm. that was my lowest point I think yes and I think it's because in some way when you grow up in an abusive environment or when you're when you're indoctrinated into an abusive environment you so you you align abuse with love because it's attention Mm -hmm. even if it's negative attention even if it's painful even if it's um causes you anxiety and fear and it's high intensity right and it you that's love yeah in your brain you connect those things because you you don't feel actual love you feel um you feel abuse but but that's the substitute so when that's whenever when all the contact is completely removed, then you feel like love has been withdrawn and you feel like, um, like complete emptiness, right? Yeah. Like that's what it was for me. It was like a black void. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was so scary. Yeah. Because so much of your attention and time has been devoted to trying to keep that there. Right. And trying to manage and trying to placate and trying it's, to, it fills a huge space right. in your life, in your mind and your psyche, everything. You build around it, right. you know? It's almost like a tumor or something. I know, it's really it true. It develops its own, like, vascular system. It's just... It's true. And I don't know. It's just... I don't know. It's weird. It's also interesting because during that time when... The, the few years when he was extremely, extremely focused on on me, I, I had another really bad bout of OCD. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Part of it was obsessive thoughts, and one of them was that I had cancer. I remember that constantly. I thought I thought I you were dying. Different kinds of cancers. Oh my god! And then we're talking about the the, the tumor with the vascular system. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's, it is weird. And and that all stopped finally when I when I stopped having contact with him. Wow. But um. But yeah, it, it takes up so much of your of your life, and so. Um, so yeah, he stopped caring to have a relationship. And for a while I was really trying hard to have one with him, even though he didn't want to anymore. And it was just rejection after rejection? Just constant rejection, constant, constant, explicit rejection. You know, I would cool. send him a message and say like, would, would it be possible for us to see each other this summer? 
and he'd say, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, I, I will not be doing that. You know, it was just cold, um, abject rejection over and over and over again. And I still thought that maybe if I like debased myself enough, he would, it would be enough for him and he would want to like have me in his life. He, he didn't hit me physically, but it felt like he was constantly beating me up. Right. And I was just laying down and right. taking it and waiting for it to stop and hoping that if I, if I took enough abuse that he would stop. And right. He would love me. Isn't it interesting though, that like you can be in a relationship with somebody who is so abusive for that long and then you don't, you're not actually able to consciously admit to yourself that it's abusive. How did you escape that relationship? How did you get free? I just remember he was sending me these text messages that were just really, really abusive and like a tirade through text message. I was laying on the floor and crying and just, I couldn't move. And my kids were in the house and I was just realizing for a second, this is not normal. And I don't want my children to see this. I don't want them to see me being abused. And I don't want them to see how upset I am and how destroyed I feel. And that was kind of the first time where something kind of an awareness kind of like entered my head where I was like, I can't keep doing this. I kind of pulled away. And then six months later or something, I tried, I tried to reach out again. That was kind of my, my pattern that I was always doing. But in, but when I reached out again after months of having pulled away um he just went right back into being abusive and I think before I might have really internalized that and taken that as evidence that I was wrong and taken that as evidence that I needed to try harder and taken that as evidence that I was deficient and that I was not good enough and not that I was unworthy of his attention and love and everything like that. But this time, because those kind of like six intervening months had been different for me since I had sort of had an awareness during that time, I didn't react in the same way. And I defended myself. So I defended myself and I actually responded back to him, telling him that, pointing out that what he was doing was abusive and pointing out, you know, that what he had been doing was abusive and pointing out that, you know, he didn't have control over me anymore and that I wasn't going to accept this treatment. And, and, and for me, like being able to say all those things out loud, really like pierced the mirage that I had been kind of living in the, the fantasy world that I had been living in too, where I was kind of imagining that what he was doing was somehow acceptable because it was to me and I deserved it somehow and it just kind of I brought everything into the light by identifying it and telling him that it wasn't okay and and that just felt like a vanquishing moment for me and um once I kind of 
called him out directly, the manipulation couldn't continue. And then I kind of, it was, it was obvious that there was no relationship at all, aside from the manipulation. That was probably seven months ago. And since then, I feel like a new person. Standing up and basically like hitting back. And you being the one to end it. Yeah. Really. Standing up, yeah. hitting back and walking away. Felt like I would restore a sense of my own dignity, not being afraid anymore, not feeling like I had to erase myself in order to exist. It was really like doing that was this, well, it was the scariest thing I've ever done. It's so hard to do it. And then once you do it, you realize that um, that was all you needed to do for it to be over. Yeah. Like I was thinking, at least for me. Yeah. For me too. Like I never, never, never thought I could leave. I just never thought it was possible. Right. Same. I never thought it would be possible. Basically what it felt like was it felt like jumping off of a very high building and then like a net came down and caught me and I didn't expect that to happen. Was it, was it, at first, I remember when I first started talking about it, I was feel like looking around, like, am I really doing this? Like, am I, am I allowed to do this? Did yeah. you get that feeling too? Oh yeah. It, it definitely felt like something transgressive. I wasn't, that was like a taboo thing. Right. Cause, Cause even, like I said, even sharing a message that he had sent me felt forbidden. And, you know, even my friends that I've known for my whole life, I hadn't shown them messages. You felt the shame. Yeah, I felt shame. I felt like it was on you. They would think it was my fault or something. That, it, that they would, that if I, if they knew how, what terrible things he said to me all the time, that they would maybe see that I was deserving of it. So did breaking the silence get rid of the shame, would you say? Yeah. It really, I was able to cast off a dark cloud that's always been over me. I just had this feeling my whole life that I was waiting, 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 that it wasn't really, hadn't started yet. You know, what something needed to change. I always wondered what it was. Like, do I have to move somewhere? Do I have to change something about myself? Like, when can I feel like my life is starting? And, and then um, I vanquished a vampire that had been sucking out my lifeblood. And suddenly it felt like a brand new fucking day. I, I cut off contact when I was 30. Um, and I feel at 30 years old is when I started my life. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our survivor-powered nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, and to find out how you can help us break the silence, visit findingourvoices.net. Feel free to get in touch with me, Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. Until next time, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long-